Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Hey, welcome into this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. Sam Dykstra, Benjamin Hill. My name is Tyler Mon. Guys, how are you? What's going on? We're doing great. This is Ben Hill, and he's doing great. I don't want to speak for Sam, so I'm doing great. I'm Ben Hill, and this is Sam Dykstra sitting to my left. Sam, great, not great. No, I'm good. I'm great. Uh, okay. Currently great. on Miguel Cabrera watch. Three thousand right watch for me. Three thousand watch. Uh, it's very exciting. Ben and I were talking about this before. This kind of feels like something that baseball does almost better than a lot of sports. Like I don't think the NBA has like a number that says golden is three thousand necessarily. Um, it's just fun to see history chased in this way. Miguel Cabrera got very close uh, on Wednesday night, uh, got one hit away. So by the time you guys are hearing this, maybe he's already at 3,000. We're, we're currently recording at 113, so the game's about to take place. But yeah, He uh, might be at 3,000 by the time we're done recording this. That is true. Yeah. By the end of this sentence, even. I feel like he's coming up the bat pretty soon. But. Yeah, that's uh, AJ Hinch said yesterday, be sure to get here early because he could bat in the first inning. Uh, you guys have TVs behind you. Is it on on any of those? It is on, yeah. Looks like the Yankees are up right now. So it's an anticipatory episode of the show before the show podcast. You guys have to keep us updated if it happens uh, during the show. So then people can hear breaking news on something a day later. This will be a live reaction podcast. You you hear like some of these things that do like that to trailers of movies. Right, yeah. This uh, just shrieking loudly at Miguel Cabrera. Um, lining a ball to left if that's what happens i don't uh, <laughs> this form of content is very unique in that way newspapers it works for us <laughs> well hey let's uh get diving in on this week's episode of the show before the show as we're into uh now week number three of the minor league baseball season tyler mon sam thanks for benjamin hill thanks for hanging out with us on this week's edition of the show before the show we got a lot coming up for you including including a uh, a very cool interview uh from jacksonville coming up here in a little bit if you want to get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. You can also tweet at us. Minor League Baseball is at MILB. Uh, Sam Dykstra at Sam Dykstra, MILB. Benjamin Hill is at Ben's Biz. I am at Tyler Mon. And let us know your uh, your questions, your thoughts, your comments, everything about the minor league season here in 2022 as uh, we get deeper into the month of April. And we kick things off on this week's edition with a very cool announcement from Minor League Baseball, which has announced that the August 9th game between the Quad Cities River Bandits and the Cedar Rapids Colonels will take place at the, quote, now iconic MLB ballpark next to the historic Field of Dreams movie site near Dyersville, Iowa. Similar, and this is from the Minor League Baseball press release, Similar to last year's MLB at Field of Dreams game in Dyersville, where the New York Yankees and Chicago White Sox donned throwback jerseys that replicated their 1919 uniforms, the host River Bandits will become the Davenport Blue Sox. They're named during the 1913 16, 1929-33, and 1934-37 seasons, while the visiting Colonels will become the Cedar Rapids Bunnies, which was their name from 1904-1932 for the MILB at Field of Dreams game. Uh, guys, I am not saying, but I am just saying, seems like the perfect episode 
for uh, the first ever live show before the show podcast at a minor league game. I'm just putting it out there for the powers that be at minor league baseball. Uh, but no, this is a very cool initiative. We had kind of thought that maybe this was coming after the the wild success of the MLB Field of Dreams game last year. Uh, but Ben, what's the reaction that you've been hearing from uh, across the game so far? Yeah, well, it's uh, you know breaking news right now, so I haven't talked to too many people about it. But uh, this is definitely a unique thing because there hasn't been a minor league element at a you know special location MLB game before. Well, there has been a minor league element, but in a different sort of way, you know, the little league classic, an annual major league game in Williamsport, you know, was at the Williamsport crosscutters home of Bowman Bowman field. So that was a case where a minor league stadium was utilized for a major league game, but there's never been a minor league team that also got to participate in a major league event such as this. And the fact that it's of course, two Iowa teams uh, from the Midwest league, um, it was, of course, a, a natural tie-in, really the only logical tie-in. And Tyler, as you read, um, you know, the fact that these teams are playing as, uh, you know, as with team names that are over 100 years old, um, you know, the Cedar Rapids and uh, Quad Cities or Davenport, Iowa, um, you know, are locations that have, you know, long and rich baseball histories. So it's not just the fact they're in Iowa. It's the fact that they can trace their own baseball lineage back to that era, you know, 1919. Hopefully there weren't any, you know, gambling scandals in the minor leagues in 1919, but who knows? It wouldn't have gotten the same press, uh, but it's going to be a really exciting thing. Obviously great for the teams involved. Uh, you know, I'll be looking forward to talking to both teams about, you know, what, what their thoughts are on the whole thing. I'm sure they're really happy to participate, but having attended the little league classic in Williamsport, it made me aware of just how tightly controlled and what a huge operation major league baseball has for these special events. And so since they run this Field of Dreams game at the MLB level, I'm sure they'll be running it at the minor league level as well. And uh, so I imagine a lot of the logistics won't be uh, involving the minor league teams so much. But, uh, you know, a lot remains to be seen and looking to digging into this a little deeper and uh, maybe just maybe getting it on the road trip schedule. So um, road trips is a tangent on that. I've got a bunch or several scheduled and hoping to announce those soon. And but I did keep this uh, these dates open in case I could maybe swing a trip to Iowa for this game because it's a, a pretty exciting event. Yeah, and, and Tyler, you've kind of done this road trip before. I mean, you've been to Quad Cities. You you went to the Field of Dreams set, like yeah. The, not the stadium that this game is going to be played, which is a little up the road, but like where actually Kevin Costner and all them had a catch. Like what, what was that experience like? It was really cool. We, uh, my dad and I went last year and yeah, we, um, we stayed in Cedar Rapids. Uh, we went through quad cities for a night. The colonels were on the road, so we didn't get a chance to catch a colonel's game. Um, we did check out, uh, their ballpark. We went to a game in, uh, quad cities, uh, got a chance to see, you know, the, the Ferris wheel on the bridge and, um, that gorgeous old ballpark and, uh, catch a river bandits game. And that's one thing that's really neat about this for these teams is it is, you know, in their area, this is, uh, um, kind of their, their home market, if you will. It's not quite the same as, you know, the, the Yankees and White Sox having to fly into somewhere small and bus somewhere for a little while and all that. Um, this feels so much more connected to, minor league baseball and the fact that it's being played in a small community in the middle of Iowa. Um, and it's awesome. Yeah. The, uh, as Sam noted, the MLB ballpark is connected to the movie site, uh, but it is a different, and you'll probably all remember this from watching it on TV last year when they had the, the drone shots and the overhead shots. It's not the actual field of dreams from the movie that they play on for these games, um, but it's just a, a short walk. That's not open to the public uh, outside of these games, so it, it kind of retains its own special value um, in the fact that you know people are only really going to get a chance to check it out when they uh, are there in attendance for games. But this is just so cool, and being able to bring the minor leagues into something like that is uh, is something really neat, and that yeah, is going to be a, a very neat venue. I'm really looking forward to the look of this as well. Yeah, I mean, last year the White Sox and Yankees obviously wore kind of specialty uniforms for this event and pulled off extremely well. Adding, you know, Tim Anderson's walk off home run was was insane. I don't know if we can expect something similar out of that from a high A game like this out of the Midwest League, but um, just the look of this with the the Davenport Blue Sox, which the logo that we have right now kind of looks like an old school Brooklyn Dodgers logo. Yeah. Instead of a B, um, same color blue and Cedar Rapids bunnies, which I love the look of this. I'm, I'm hoping they start to sell hats of this pretty soon. It's just, it's a rabbit that extends across the state of Iowa. Yeah, Cedar Rapids bunnies sounds like uh, one of the selections in a uh, Josh Jackson ghost of the miners. It does. 
seriously, when you were listing that, Tyler, like when all the years that they use Cedar Rapids bunnies, I was like, this is a, a ghost segment um, that maybe we'll have to use yeah. come, come early August. But uh, I'm all aboard. You know, we'll, we'll see how we can plan things out. But I think this would be the perfect game uh, for us to, you know, let, let's say we have a meeting around second base over there in the, the cornfields. And that's where we record a podcast. I'm, I'm definitely up for that. Yeah, likely that not sounds delightful. Yeah. probably not during the game. We would get a lot of good ASMR from, yeah. you know, having a yeah, game actually happening in the background. It's good Nat sound. Uh, which of these rascally rabbits bounced around the base pads and the miners? <laughs> um, it's a, a really cool idea and it is coming up this year. Later on this year, you can get all the details on that game uh, at MILB.com. And uh, with that, we've got another story that is coming to the site. Ben's got a, a great story on a beloved figure in Syracuse, uh, home of the AAA Mets, uh, who is going to be immortalized uh, at the ballpark in Syracuse. Uh, ben, give us the, the story behind the story. Yeah, Don Donald Johnston uh, was better known uh, at Syracuse's MBT Bank ballpark as well as throughout the uh, Syracuse sports community as Donnie Baseball. And he was a longtime press box attendant for the Syracuse Chiefs, then the Syracuse Mets. And um, he was a really unique guy. I actually met him a few times. And um, he ran that press box with a lot of care. And so when he passed away, um, it made a really impact, you know, of course, among the Syracuse Mets organization, uh, the entire Syracuse sports community, because he also worked for the hockey team there, the soccer team there, local high school athletics. Um, it was a big loss for them. And of course, throughout the International League, um, you know, with scouts as well, uh, you know, with uh, members from the parent club, you know, the Mets and before that, the Nationals, um, you know, there's a, there's a hole there now uh, that, that can't be filled because uh, Don... Donnie Baseball was a really unique guy. So on Thursday, tonight, uh, for when we're taping this, uh, the team is naming the press box in his honor, the Donald Donnie Baseball Johnston press box in Syracuse. And um, I remember when he died in January. So he's been gone for you know just a, a number of months now. And uh, I remember tweeting about it when it first occurred, and a lot of people were sharing memories. And almost everyone mentions, well, two things. One, what a hospitable guy he was. You know, he always made sure that the announcers had enough water, you know, the visiting broadcasters. And not just that, he remembered things about them, um, you know, things they liked. You know, Howard Kelman with Indianapolis, uh, you know, is a voracious reader. So Donnie would always make sure that he had new magazines uh, when the Indianapolis Indians were in town. So Howard Kelman could read them, that sort of thing. Um, always remembering people's needs, uh, going above and beyond and kindness and hospitality. And having, this is the other thing that people mentioned, he had this... Uh, incredible ability to calculate numbers in his head. He was often called Donnie Stats, uh, you know, outside of a baseball context, Donnie Baseball or Donnie Stats. But if someone told him his birthday, if you told Donnie your birthday, he would calculate the number of days old you were in his head, you know, pausing at the end to add a, the applicable leap year days as well. That and um, I, I saw this in action too. Last time I visited Syracuse, which I believe was 2018, I was in the press box uh, briefly. And there was a sign on the broadcaster's uh, door um, welcoming the Scranton Wilkesbury broadcasters at the time. It was well, still Adam Marco and also Adam Giardino. And uh, there was a welcome sign from Donnie on the door that that said the number of days, hours and minutes it had been since they were last in Syracuse. In Syracuse. So he was a, a quirky guy in that regard, um, but, you know, deeply beloved. And uh, it's the kind of story I like writing to highlight uh, some of the lesser known but uh, crucial minor league ballpark characters and RIP Donnie Baseball in Syracuse. That's a great thing that the team's doing name in the press box after him because that was very much his domain. Yeah, it is really cool stuff. And and people like that are such a fabric of minor league front offices and minor league communities and all that. And uh, rest in peace to Syracuse's Donnie Baseball and a very cool gesture by the franchise as well. Um, and oh, go ahead. I cut you off. I was just going to say, of course, you know, and I make this in the story. Uh, you have to say Syracuse is Donnie Baseball, as you just did, because right. Donnie Baseball has the other one. greater connotations with the other one, Don Mattingly. But uh, Syracuse wants, to, you know, wants everyone to know that they had their own Donnie Baseball. And, you know, he's worthy of remembering too, of course. Pretty cool stuff. Um, so let's discuss uh, a little uh, teaser for what we got for this interview coming up this week. We are uh, going to be talking with Jacksonville about a 2021 promo that I believe is originally a 2020 
promo that then got rolled back uh, a year due to the pandemic, then got rolled back due to a, a logistical issue for another year. Um, have we seen a lot of that this year? Ben, I know we talked a little bit before the start of the season about the promos that we were most excited to see in 2022, but there have to have been a lot of 2021 ideas uh, that carried over for this year, I would think. Yeah, or 2020 ideas. Um, yeah. You know, I don't have a ton of examples on hand, but obviously everything planned for 2020 flat out didn't happen. A lot of that was able to carry over into 2021. But of course, 2021 had a lot of its own challenges. You know, the season didn't start till May. And then for, you know, depending on the area the team played in and, uh, you know, existing local state laws, uh, you know, regarding capacity restrictions with COVID, um, there was still um, a lot of, um, you know, hesitancy to, to put big promos on the calendar even last year. So we are seeing in 2022, uh, certain things that were planned for 2020, including, you know, the, the focus of our next segment, but also, uh, you know, one that does come to mind is uh, Fort Wayne, their Copa identity, the uh, fighting apples, I, f- I forget what it is in Spanish, the manzanas luchadores, I believe, uh, that was announced in 2020. And then same thing, you know, when 2021 started, uh, they were hesitant to get, you know, to debut this identity with the uncertainty around the season. So now in 2022, you are seeing a, uh, a debut for Fort Wayne's Copa team that was originally announced in 2020. And I'm sure there's other examples such as that around baseball where we're still getting up to speed here in 2022. And as we've talked about before on the podcast, um, you know, it takes time. And uh, with so much transition with uh, dealing with COVID 2022 is definitely a rebound year, but um, I think, you know, it'll still be a number of years before teams are like, you know, fully back on track and settled in in this new era and uh, you know, operating as they did prior to 2020. So we're going to discuss one of those types of promos with David Ratz of the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. Uh, Tell us about what's coming up. Yeah, Tuesday, April 19th, a huge night in Jacksonville. Acuna of the visiting Gwinnett Stripers, Ronald Acuna, uh, made his um, 2022 on-field debut uh, in a AAA rehab as a visiting player. Doug Peterson, the coach of the Jaguars, came uh, came by and threw out the first pitch for the Jumbo Shrimp. But the pre-existing scheduled promotion, was a Ray Charles bobblehead on uh, deaf and blind awareness night. And the team got the out of sight band from the Florida school for the deaf and blind to come to the ballpark and perform as well. And Ray Charles was an alumni of that school. So a lot going on, a promo planned for 2020 finally happened here in 2022. And we're going to talk to uh, Jumbo Shrimp promo director, David Ratz, all about it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The one that we are pushing to 2022, which I was super excited about and now is in storage, was our um, Deaf Blind Awareness Night. We have partnered with the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind, which is 20, 25 minutes down the road. Uh, Ray Charles, their most famous alum. We reached out to the Ray Charles Foundation. We have permission to do a bobblehead in his likeness. So we have a Ray Charles bobblehead all ready to go. The school was going to come up and participate in the evening. Um, And for those that aren't familiar, it's a boarding school. So the students go home on the weekends and around holidays, they're only in town during the week. But the school is not traveling, obviously, because of COVID and everything. And, you know, the promotion, while it's cool to give away a bobblehead, the whole point behind it was to get the school and the students involved. So they can't come out this year. So we have pushed that with the blessing of, you know, the school and Ray's foundation to 2022 so that we actually can have the students come out and participate. Here on the show before the show podcast, myself, Benjamin Hill, sitting next to Sam Dykstra, Tyler Mon in Colorado, and joining us from Jacksonville, Florida, North Florida, not the panhandle, I don't believe. But North Florida, I'm still working out my geography. Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp promo director, David Ratz. David, thanks for being here with us today. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Good to see everybody again. Yeah, and we would consider you a friend of the podcast, uh, a friend in real life. But uh, we're not just having you on because you're a friend. You are talking two days after a uh, 
really significant promotion you did originally scheduled for 2020, then couldn't make it work in 2021. So the long awaited uh, Ray Charles bobblehead giveaway, uh, deaf blind awareness night, uh, lots going on at the ballpark and we'll get into all that, but um, yeah, give us a little background on, uh, on what, for those who did not follow this two plus year saga, uh, tell us a little bit about Ray Charles his connection to Jacksonville and uh, why you gave away his bobblehead. Yeah, for sure. Uh, appreciate, appreciate you having me on again. And uh, so yes, Jacksonville and Ray Charles um, as any promo director who lives in a city, you're always looking for historical figures that have come through that maybe you can do a fun bobblehead of or do something like that. So we look and I see Ray Charles attended the Florida School for the Deaf and the Blind, which is 25 minutes down the road in St. Augustine. Uh, He attended the school for actually seven years, which is wild in that they never mention that in the movie or anything like that, uh, which is, is crazy. So you know, we got to thinking that'd be a cool bobblehead. Um, how can we do that? The significance of it, because, you know, you, you always get, oh, if it's not a player, some people will reach out and like, why are you doing that bobblehead? So thought maybe there's a deaf blind awareness um, element to it. And, you know, my friend Hunter in Myrtle Beach, he had done uh, deaf awareness night the year prior, I believe it was, uh, and was phenomenal. They did sign language jerseys. They did all that cool stuff. So I reached out to him and kind of got some, um, you know, some inspiration as well as do's and don'ts for the night, which would be kind of cool. Then reached out to the school itself uh, to see if they'd be interested. And then also reached out to Ray Charles's estate and his foundation and, you know, offered uh, our plan, said, this is what we want to do. We would love to make a monetary donation to his foundation to have, you know, essentially your tie-in or buy-in to do the bobblehead and do the rights. They were 100% on board. They loved the idea. So we did a donation to his foundation. And then we had the school all lined up. They were super excited about it. And yeah, March 2020 happened. So there's that. And we're sitting on them. You know, obviously no schools traveling. Nobody's doing anything. Uh, they've been sitting in storage and then we opened back up in 2021 still couldn't make it happen uh, with the school you know we we obviously were playing baseball we could have done the giveaway but it was important to us not to do it until the school could actually do field trips again and come out and be a part of the night and so we held it another year and just hoping that in 2022 things would open back up and the school would be able to travel and started having those conversations in the winter of 2021 and the school let us know that, yes, they were open to coming back out and leaving campus and doing a field trip. And we just started getting everything lined up, got it lined up for 2022. Um, it was it was it was it was incredible. I, I don't say that lightly. It was in talking with the school administrators and the music teachers, the first school field trip for the Florida School for Deaf and the Blind in two years. Um, it was also the largest crowd they have ever performed in front of by double their last their their largest crowd performance was 2000 people and we had 5400 people here that Tuesday um it was incredible and just to see the school come out the band the school bust in another 85 people 85 people just to watch the night we had um first coast sign language interpreters on site so the whole first base side of our seating bowl had interpreters um, for everything interpreters down on the field for the anthem it was pretty cool uh it was just it, it was a really good night and capped off by the fact that band can sing it wasn't just you know a throwaway of oh cute let's get some kids out here and listen to them it was actually a solid legit anthem which was phenomenal uh and it just turned into a really really special night seeing everybody down there so it was cool yeah, and this band has an incredible name as well, the, the Out of Sight yes. Band. Yeah, so when we first were talking to him, um, and and the music teacher said, yeah, we're called the Out of Sight Band. And I said, how am I supposed to react? What am I allowed to say? And they said, no, no, no. The students named it. They're in on the joke. They think it's hilarious, uh, which was phenomenal. And so it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, last week, I got a call from Major League Baseball, not from you guys. Uh, asking, you know, hey, we saw the marketing for Deaf Blind Awareness Night, you know, and it says you're going to it's going to be an out of sight night at the ballpark. Sure, that's the way you want to go. And so we explained 
the tie-in and the band name and all that stuff. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. That's great. We love it. Awesome. Just wanted to be sure. So, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of funny. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, you know, over 5,000 people being at the ballpark. Um, you would have had an above average Tuesday night crowd because of what you were doing with, uh, with the school and with the Ray Charles bobblehead giveaway. But you end up getting Doug Peterson, Jaguars coach, formerly an Eagle Super Bowl winning coach, uh, to come to the ballpark and uh, throw out the first pitch. So the, all of a sudden you got Doug Peterson there, and then you're playing the Gwinnett Stripers, Atlanta's AAA team, and uh, Acuna makes his 2022 on-field debut. So you ended up with uh, quite a Tuesday, to say the least. It was a perfect storm, without a doubt. It was it was a lot of fun, just some really cool atmosphere in the ballpark. Uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was great. Um, we also got to unleash uh, our new promo toy, which is a souped up off-road Polaris golf cart that is powered by eight CO2 tanks, two train horns and a Gatling gun that shoots 74 t-shirts in a minute. Uh, so we got to pull that out on Tuesday as well. There's two of them in existence. The Cincinnati Reds have one and we have one. Uh, and so that was the 2022 debut of that beast as well. So it was a very interesting uh, evening to say the least. Yeah, and I'm sure just having Acuna there, you know, we were talking before, like the second that gets announced, there are lots of people buying tickets. But, you know, how much did that kind of work hand in hand with with trying to do deaf blind awareness night and getting all these people get get to see the out of sight band for the first time? That was the coolest part because we're just sitting there seeing, you know, they make the announcements and we see the pre-sale jump and jump and jump. And it, it's, it's cool. I mean, you know, look, he's a superstar. There's no denying that, uh, you know, we had people calling from Atlanta that were driving down and all this and it, it was fun. And that, and that was honestly where my mind went is there's going to be so many people here that are going to see this night and see this band. And it, it's, it's going to be great. Uh, you know, did half the bobbleheads maybe make their way back to Atlanta at the end of the night. Maybe so, but you know, that's, that's beside the point. Um, it, it was great. I mean, we, we reached out to the school the day after, thanked them for coming and just the note we got back of how incredible it was for them and to be out in front of all these people uh, was just, it, 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 it tugged on the heartstrings for sure. Well, and it's kind of fitting that uh, maybe half the bobbleheads of uh, Ray Charles ended up back in Atlanta, a guy who's saying George is on my mind. Uh, and I'm curious as to the reaction from his, uh, foundation and the people who honor his legacy. David, you said you uh, were in contact with them and you guys made a, a monetary contribution. There are so many um, ways that Ray Charles has been uh, commemorated and celebrated and minor league baseball teams probably aren't uh, super common on that list. When you got in touch with them, what was their reaction? I would imagine something that's kind of uh, unorthodox from the standard is probably very cool to them. And especially something that, like you said, I mean, his time at the school was not in the movie. It's not something that's extraordinarily well known about him. So to honor a, a period in his life that was very formative, but maybe not as well known, I would think they probably thought that was really cool yeah they did they they, they did think it was cool and, and you're right we were the first minor league baseball team to ever reach out to him for sure uh it was it was it was interesting you know and and again from the school's perspective too because he was there for seven years but he was he was kicked out he was kicked out because he kept skipping school to hop on a train to go to jacksonville to play in the local jazz clubs that's how he he got his start so the history there is it it's interesting because they while they, yes, they all recognize that happened, it's not something that either one are trumpeting necessarily. So it's, it's just a really cool backstory. When uh, you first learned of this chapter in Ray Charles's life, I mean, that's, that's a very neat tie-in that it's because he ended up leaving school so often to go to Jacksonville to play in jazz clubs. Um, is that something that's celebrated around the Jacksonville community um, otherwise? I mean, are there, you know, markers that denote like, oh, this is the first place Ray Charles played? Is it is it something that people in Jacksonville are aware of? To some extent, yes. Uh, there's a neighborhood, I guess, the west side of downtown. It's called La Villa. Um, and sadly, a lot of that area, um, A, was destroyed in a fire, uh, but B, was not the best part of town um, back in those days. However, there is a historic theater and museum. It's called the Ritz Theater and Museum that, uh, you know, was rumored that was one of the places he may have played back in the days. And they've hosted exhibits um, and, you know, there's 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 a couple things around town, but it is kind of one of those hidden secret gem type of things. 
And one thing, I mean, we've been talking about Ray Charles this whole time and, and the promotion. We haven't talked about the bobblehead itself. Kind of, I know this is a you know uh, audio medium here, but kind yes. of take us through the design of it and what you guys landed on for a design. I was, I was seeing one if I had one on my desk, but I think I may have given it to somebody. Uh, yeah, so basically took you know, as any bobblehead comes to life, you're like, oh, wait, I want the face from that picture, the hands from this picture, the sunglasses from this picture, you know, and you have in your I, in your mind what it'll look like. And then, you know, we wanted them sitting down at a piano. Um, there's, you know, the team logo on the front. And it, I mean, it, it, it looks kind of, it looks like, you know, the Jamie Foxx trailer pick from Ray, kind of him at the piano. Um, but obviously more to Ray's liking than Jamie. Um, so it, it turned out really cool, but yeah, it's him seated at the piano with a microphone coming up, sunglasses on, um, and, and head bobbing, bobbling away, which, you know, it is, is quite accurate. Yeah. And Ray Charles has connections all over that area. I, I wish I remember more specifics, but on uh, one of my road trips years ago, I drove past a sign that said, like, I don't think it was his birthplace, but a town he lived in, Greenville, Florida, had a statue of him in, like, the little town square. So I got off the exit and uh, went to the town of Greenville, Florida, to see this Ray Charles statue. And what I remember most of all is that this town, in the middle of the summer, it felt like no one was there, no one lived there. It was kind of eerie just because it felt, I don't want to quite say post-apocalyptic, but it was a small town and there was just virtually no signs of life. You could you know, see the humidity and there's this Ray Charles statue. So if you're in the area, Greenville, Florida, uh, that's a good bit of uh, Ray Charles tourism. But, you know, to close it with talking about more Ray Charles, um, I imagine you played his music during the game. Um, you know, we're all familiar with Ray Charles, but as we've had this conversation, I was like, you know, I don't really know his discography very well or some of the, you know, really classic uh, cuts. I heard a great duet with him and George Jones on country radio during one of my uh, road trips last year. But beyond that, um, you know, in putting together a playlist for the evening, um, I know you're a music fan in general. Um, you know, what would you recommend as some, you know, standout uh, Ray Charles songs or albums? Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm actually I'm looking back and was about to pull up. What did I have? Uh, so the songs we did last night. So, or two nights ago, he did a version of Country Road, Take Me Home Country Road, which was pretty solid. We played that. Um, Obviously, uh, Hit the Road Jack, uh, What I Say, and Unchain My Heart was pretty solid. And then we had a, um, a, a club remix of Hit the Road Jack, which, you know, you got to get got to get some bass in it. Uh, and we did that. So it was cool. It was cool. We, we It's funny. My, myself and our AGM, we were sitting there debating, you know, because it's it's not just Ray Charles night. It's Deaf Blind Awareness Night. So, you know, searching for other deaf or blind musicians with music that's upbeat enough to play in park is somewhat challenging. You have, you know, Jeff Healy, who made the appearance in Roadhouse, if you're uh, familiar, that actually was a blind guy playing as blind musician in that movie. So one of his songs we could use. And then we were sitting here and we said, so Stevie Wonder, also blind, it's deaf blind awareness night. We could play some Stevie, but are people going to hear Stevie and think, we're idiots because, hey, that's not Ray Charles. That's Stevie Wonder, <laughs> you morons. Or are they going to say, oh, it's Deaf Blind Awareness. That's why they're playing Stevie. So we decided not to go with the Stevie because we didn't think, we thought people would think we were making a mistake, even though we weren't. Well, excellent. Well, it's uh, great to hear all about it. A uh, long time in the making. And um, yeah, 5,000 people on a Tuesday night. You know, take that, other teams in minor league baseball. It's, uh, it's tough to do in the month of April. So nice confluence of events there. Uh, David Ratz, promo director, Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. Thanks again, yet again, for being on the show before the show podcast. Much appreciated, guys. And I got to hop off here talking with our uh, hot air balloon pilot who will be here on Friday for our best seat over the house promotion. All right, I'll probably at least text you about that one, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to hearing how that one goes too. It's a, it's a mile a minute in minor league baseball during the season and uh, very few teams have as good a promo schedule as the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. So uh, we'll be talking about them all season with this, that, and the other thing. You just never know. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, let's talk some on-field stuff for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, we're going to kick things off with a conversation that has uh, been around the minor leagues, especially for the last couple of years, and uh, now, of course, is approaching the major league level, and that is one of pitch clocks, on-field clocks, which have drastically shortened the time of minor league games over the last couple of seasons. Last year, I remember we are talking with uh, a couple of broadcasters who are now in the uh, thankfully rechristened California League in uh, single A about uh, what the pitch clocks had done in that league. The Cal League, obviously notorious for uh, high scoring games, long games, games that just dragged uh, with pitching changes and with crazy offensive innings and all of that. Uh, the Cal League has eliminated its craziest offensive environments, uh, but the pitch clock really helped last year speed games along. There was a story this week by ESPN.com's Jeff Passan, which of course got uh, a lot of notoriety discussed how minor league pitch clocks have worked, how they have sped up the game, and how they've kept the flow of the game better. It's not just that the game is faster, that it seems to move at a steadier pace. Uh, I know our, our friend of the podcast, Alex Friedman, tweeted about a game between uh, Oklahoma City, the team for which he broadcasts, and I believe El Paso. Um, and I think that one clocked in at under two hours, if I remember correctly. Uh, so there are a lot of things that have been uh, discussed with the pitch clocks. But above all, they seem to be working and speeding up games. Sam, uh, give us the breakdown of what you're hearing about the pitch clock so far in 2022. Yeah, so the reason why we're talking about this now is because pitch clocks were actually starting to be enforced last Friday. Um, so, you know, you may have started to, if you were at a ball game over the weekend across any of the minor league levels, you might have seen an automatic ball call because a pitcher uh, didn't, you know, come set or didn't throw the ball enough in time or even automatic strike calls. There was a, at least one instance that I know, and there might have been some others, but there were somebody struck out the side on each eight pitches. Uh, because of automatic strikes like you're going to see that and yeah it can kind of be and that's because of a hitter what that's because of a hitter's violation hitter's violation right exactly. right right yeah the hitter also has to we call it a pitch clock but the hitter also has to be ready right in a certain amount of time um so just to reiterate what those rules are for this year um when nobody is on base at all full season levels the pitcher has to deliver the ball within 14 seconds. There's big clocks all around the place. They're, they're generally aware of how quickly they have to go. If there are runners on base, it's 18 seconds at double A, high A, and single A, 19 seconds at triple A. So they're trying out something different there. But like you said, there were there were a couple of games this weekend that I was following along, finishing in around two hours, 20 minutes, two hours, 30 minutes. Um, I, I Like you said, there was a nine inning game that went under two hours. Um, this really is having an effect. Just look at what the data is telling us right now in 2021, the average nine inning game in AAA lasted three hours and four minutes right now. And this is only including, you know, pitch clock data going back to last Friday. So even before that, when we weren't enforcing the pitch clock, this is included in this data. We've shaved off 11 minutes. It's an average of two hours and 53 minutes right now. We expect that to go down as more and more games are using the pitch clock. Um, watching the game, there's a certain rhythm to it. Uh, it's, it's a lot more enjoyable to watch. Um, it, it, I know that passing story that came out was pretty, uh, pro the pitch clock and there was some reaction in it, um, that was pretty pro from the players and, and it's, you know, easy to see why, uh, for certain aspects, I saw some people reacting on Twitter, some, some players, some managers saying it's still going to take some getting used to, um, Tucker Davidson of the Braves said, He's going to have to see it in a second start. Uh, he didn't really like it the first time. You know, there's going to be growing pains with anything like this. That's such a big change. But the fact that we're already shaving off 11 minutes, that's going to drop uh, consistently. Again, looking back, you mentioned last year in what was then called Low A West, the California League historically, uh, how games were able to drop. It was two hours and 43 minutes last year was the average Cal League game. Um, that's what we're kind of hoping for here is getting in maybe in that two-hour 40 range. Uh, with these pitch clock changes, but to see them used so effectively early on 
it's great to see. Hopefully that's going to continue to be enforced further and further. We go into the season um, and hopefully it'll become second nature. Like I said, the, these stumbling blocks, everybody's going to get over them in the first few weeks. Uh, and, you know, we, we could be seeing more games under two hours while still playing nine innings, which would have been crazy to think about just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, it's something that we have pointed out from time to time. This is not an, an invented rule. There have always been rules on the books in baseball about the time frame in which a pitcher needs to deliver a pitch in which a batter needs to be ready uh, to, to see a pitch. They were not uh, enforced by digital clocks, of course, but um, this is something that has been on the books. Now it's being enforced in a visible manner. Uh, and, you know, I think it's uh, better than some alternatives that have been floated like seven inning games. I know the uh, the AAA Mexican League or what is formerly known as a AAA League uh, the Mexican league has certain days of the week now in which it will be playing seven inning games instead of nine inning games. I think it's Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Uh, there was an announcement about that last week. So it's, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, uh, to me, the, the pitch clock thing is greatly preferable to that and it works. And I think the thing that we always hear from people is after you notice it for the first time, you don't really notice it again. Um, that's one of the big elements of the pitch clock. It just becomes something that is part of the fabric of what you are experiencing at a baseball game uh, and, and not in a negative way. So uh, we continue to see the, uh, the expansion and development of that here in 2022. Um, our second topic this week, strike two, let's call it, uh, is the St. Louis Cardinals slugging second baseman Nolan Gorman. Of course, drafted as a third baseman by the Cardinals, shifted over to second when the Cardinals acquired another Nolan. Nolan Arnato to play at third at the big league level. Nolan Gorman, seven homers in seven games uh, at one stretch, which was uh, his seventh capped off on Tuesday night. He's been a monster and started this season 0 for 9 with five strikeouts in his first three games and has just obliterated the ball ever since. How close is he getting to St. Louis right now? I would think he's got to be pretty close. I mean, this is a guy that we saw last year at AAA for a pretty significant sample. He was young at – it was his age 21 season. He was young – for AAA, but he got 328 plate appearances last year from Memphis. So we know entering the season that he was going to be basically knocking on the door, um, at least offensively. Defensively, still a work in progress at second base. I know anybody you talk to with the Cardinals raves about the progress that he's made over the last year plus, uh, learning a new position and really taking that to heart and working with uh, some of the Cardinals infield coordinators to, to get more fluid and, and more natural at second base. Um, but offensively, for me, the big thing to, to watch for Nolan Gorman coming into this year in his return to AAA was he got the ball on the ground a lot last year uh, with the Redbirds. 45% of his batted balls were ground balls last year. Now that's down to 29.6%. Um, so we've always known he has plus power. That goes back to his draft days. He was winning high school home run derbies uh, just a couple of years ago. He's always had tremendous raw power. But if you're putting the ball on the ground, you're obviously not tapping into that. He's starting to do that now. I mean, seven homers in seven games is not natural. Like, that's not going to happen all the time. We're not saying he's capable of going on a one homer per game uh, rate for the rest of the year. I mean, you look at some of the outlying numbers, like 70% of his fly, fly balls right now have been home runs. Uh, he has no other extra base hits, no doubles, no triples. All of his extra base hits are home runs. Stuff like that's going to even out in time. And, yes, he is striking out. Uh, a little bit higher this year, 36% of the time. Uh, that's up from 19.2 last year. But in terms of putting all the pieces together and looking like the Nolan Gorman that we always thought he could be, which is a slugging first infielder, uh, regardless of position, yeah, he's getting pretty close. I mean, the, the Cardinals have a second baseman right now. He's off to his own good start in Tommy Edmond. Uh, and I thought coming into the year that Tommy Edmond didn't have that great of a la year last year. It was basically just going to come down to Gorman pushing for the spot. It's a little bit more difficult for him to do that now, but – you know, the, the Cardinals have always been high on Nolan Gorman, and, and they really do envision him as their second baseman of the future. Uh, he's right now second in the minor leagues in home runs with those seven blasts for, for Memphis. Uh, another week or two of, of being this hot, and they will find a spot for him one way or the other. I feel like we're probably going to see his major league debut by the end of May, uh, maybe even sooner if he continues to punish the ball like he has, but certainly an encouraging start in all the right ways for Nolan Gorman, starting with like I said, him getting the ball off the ground and really tapping into that tremendous raw pop. And let's move from uh, a top infield prospect to the top 
catching prospect in baseball and his future battery mate at the big league level. Both of them, the Baltimore Orioles organization, Adley Rutschman and Grayson Rodriguez. And our topic of conversation today is which of those guys, Sam, do you think makes it up first? Adley Rutschman starting a little bit behind the eight ball. He had the lat strain in spring training and, uh, you know, still on the road back from that. Uh, his uh, future battery mate in Baltimore, Grayson Rodriguez, were coming up on his fourth start for AAA Norfolk so far this year. 2-0 record of 1.26 ERA. He's allowed five hits and two walks in 14 and a third innings while striking out 23. What do you forecast for these guys for the next several weeks or months? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that uh, coming into the spring, would we have been expecting to have this type of debate? And it's tough to have a clear answer here because, like you mentioned, Adley Rutschman, he's got a triceps injury. He's coming back from that. The Orioles keep giving updates that are really promising and saying, like, you know, he's he's progressing well. He's he's hitting this week. He's doing BP. He's doing all the right things. But we just haven't seen him yet. Meanwhile, Grayson Rodriguez, like you said, is shoving through three starts for AAA Norfolk watching his start last night, like he's not really getting challenged uh, against these AAA hitters. He, he mentioned in a story for MLB Pipeline, like I, I'm just focused on getting two strikes and then we can start to figure out how to strike these guys out. But it's working incredibly well. He has maybe the deepest pitching repertoire in minor league baseball right now. Uh, it's been really fun to see Grayson Rodriguez push that way. The other funny thing is that the Orioles right now, I think they lead starting pitching war. At, at this stage, and, and there's some factors that go into that. Obviously, Camden Yards just like we all bigger. predicted. I know, right? Yeah, I mean, it's early sample size garbage. Take it for what it's worth. Um, but it's not like the, the Orioles right now have been unsuccessful with their starting pitching again in a way that we wouldn't have expected. So I think it, it's all going to come down to how do they treat Adley Rutschman uh, when he comes back? Is he going to get a glorified rehab assignment? Is he going to be sent to Norfolk to? establish himself for like two weeks. Is it just a couple games? Uh, we'll see. But with every start, Grayson Rodriguez looks more and more major league ready and you got to get him a challenge at some point. Uh, and I, I don't know. We, we were talking about this amongst ourselves yesterday. Some of the pipeline folks, I put a month from now as a potential major league debut day for Grayson Rodriguez. So that would be around, around May 20th. Um, some other people thought later in June, but again, at a certain point, there's just nothing else for him to prove maybe he'll be challenged one of these days, but all of his pitches are working. They're getting swings and misses by the dozens. Uh, it's been really, really fun to watch it. And it, it's on the, the table now that Grayson Rodriguez could see Baltimore before Adley Rutschman, depending on how that recovery continues to go for Adley Rutschman and his triceps. That's on what's going on on the field uh, across the minor league baseball landscape through the first couple of weeks. Uh, Ghost of the Miners coming up with Josh Jackson. We'll be back to wrap up the show on the other side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once climbed to great heights, the others never actually got off the ground. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Ketchum Ketchup Dunkers. B. The Wink Sputters. C. The Caribou Crispers. You get an extra helping of sour cream and chives if you picked B the Wink Sputters, 
who picked off base runners while honoring the potato pickers of Wink in Winkler County of West Texas in 1937 and 1938. The Sputters butted alongside six other clubs as they were a charter member of the West Texas New Mexico League. In that 37 season, if you blinked, you missed Wink, as the Sputters never sputtered or stuttered in their quest for the circuit's first crown. In fact, the Sputters were real hot potatoes, <laughs> getting standout performances from the likes of novel Barney Barnhill, Ulrich Dopey Benny, Orby W. Hay, Robert B. Hood, and Eddie Gines. A 19-year-old, 145-pound shortstop credited with a 371 batting average that year. In 1938, the Sputters tried to russet the clock, believing with a little determination Yukon prevents a title famine with back-to-back -back championships. Well, the Sputters may have spouted lies, but it turns out they didn't have legs. The reigning champs were in first at the end of May, but those Sputters peeled out over the next few months finishing 63 and 65. The fourth place standing did allow Wink to winkle into the playoffs, but Hack Miller's Lubbock Hubbers baked them taters, three games to zero. In January 1939, word around the potato cellar was that the sputters were for sale, and when the new West Texas New Mexico season blossomed, Wink had tinkled out. And that's how the sputters got fried. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these busybodied clubs had a few productive seasons in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Provo Silver Haulers. B. The Appleton Papermakers. C. The Hollywood Producers. Want to know the answer? Get working. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill has been asked to help out on Earth but he's needed on his home planet. Huge thanks to David Ratz a little while ago from the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, Josh Jackson as well. Uh, MILB.TV, your place to catch all the top talent in minor league baseball. Sam, what are you watching on MILB TV this weekend? So... For the upcoming week, I will suggest, because we won't be talking to you guys before this, um, I will suggest people tune in for the game next Thursday in Somerset. Uh, it will be a rivalry game of some sorts. It will be Portland Sea Dogs at the Somerset Patriots. Um, next Thursday just so happens to be Anthony Volpe's 21st birthday, uh, top Yankees prospect. So see if he hits a birthday blast for his own birthday. Um, but, yeah, tune in for that game. I might be able to announce something soon specifically about that one, but just keep that one on your calendar. It's going to be probably a very good game anyways. Red Sox left-hander Brandon Walter, if they continue this schedule, he seems to be the projected starter. Um, he's gotten off to a really good start there in double-A. Uh, Volpe can turn it on at any time. He actually just hit uh, his, I think it was his second home run of the season the other night in Hartford. Um, Hartford seems like a good place for him to turn it on and, and start to, um, you know, get better offensively at double A as he learns more about the level. Fully expect him next week to be up to full speed uh, at that specific spot. And plus being at home him being a Jersey guy, lots of good things to watch next Thursday between Somerset and Portland. And like I said, keep an eye out uh, for my Twitter feed where I might have an announcement about that specific game very soon. Uh, Tyler, what do you got your eye on? Uh, I, too, have a Red Sox affiliate as one of the two to watch. The Salem Red Sox will be on the uh, MILB.TV airwaves against the Charleston River Dogs, and it's a matchup of 2021 first-round high school shortstop draft selection. So you've got Marcella Meyer on the Salem side, who has started off pretty well, a 317-404-415 slash line for him. On the other side, Tampa Bay Rays number nine prospect Carson Williams, who's been really good so far, 296-367-593. He is with with Charleston. Uh, so the River Dogs on the road at Salem to take on the Red Sox. So you can catch that game from Salem Memorial Ballpark on MILB.TV. And uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. For Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week.